Grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. Today we are into our last stretch, our last little passage in this series we've been calling the Upside Down Kingdom. We're going to take one Sunday off and then in December we're going to be, well, we're going to have church, but we're going to just be in, not in a series, just a sermon for sermon. And then throughout December we're going to be in a Christmas series that's going to be a lot of fun. Eventually in the new year we'll jump back into Luke, but today we wind down the Upside Down down kingdom with this little gem of a passage at the beginning of Luke 7. This is this story that we're about to dive into today is only found in the Gospel of Luke. It's not a very well-known story. It's not one that's often referenced or talk about, talked about. But I have to tell you, as I, as I got into this scripture passage this week, this one is just a gem. There's just... There's such a sweetness to what we learn about Jesus and his kingdom in these words. So so dial in with me if you would. Luke chapter 7, we're starting in verse 11. Luke begins this way. Soon afterward, and, and, and pause, we have only two words in and I'm pausing you. Luke is telling us but with these words, soon afterward, that what, what's about to be said, this story he's about to tell, ties into the message that he has been telling us. Ties into the passage from last week where, where Jesus uh, healed the centurion's servant. Ties into the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus explained what it's like to live in the kingdom of God in this world and be, and be one who bears the name of Jesus. So, so Jesus is kind of continuing now with the same stream of thought. Soon afterwards... Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Jesus tells us that right off the top that what he's about to say ties in with what's come before and what's about to happen is going to happen in this little town called Nain. Jesus goes to this little town. It's, it's a town that's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible outside of this passage. And, and for real practical reasons, Nain was just a, a small, podunk, teeny tiny little village kind of out in the middle of nowhere, about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. Now, just in the previous passage, Jesus was in Capernaum. So we know that he's now made this 20-mile hike down to the big, booming metropolis of Nain. Anyone ever been to Nain? If you Google Nain, by the way, what you'll find is just these, there's a little ceramic elf, apparently, whose name is Nain. And if you do Google images, all, you'll just see tons and tons. And it's very appropriate, but it's just tons of little elves, not what Jesus is talking about here. This is actually a city in Israel. Now, the reason Luke is careful to point out to us where Jesus is headed, the reason why this location is so important for our story today is because... The location actually ties this story, it ties this moment that we're going to study, this this life event of Jesus, to two very significant events from the past. You know, in, in every culture, and ours included, there are places that when you mention them, that place immediately is associated with a person or an event or sometimes some of both, right? We have these sorts of places in our culture. If I say Mount Vernon, who do you think of? Who do you think of? Okay, all right. You're scaring me, church. You think of George Washington. That was George Washington's home. And so if I say Mount Vernon, you immediately think of George Washington, or else you should, or else you should go back to fifth grade history. Um, 
And then you think about the beginning of our country and the Revolutionary War and him being the first president. If I say, you have a couple more chances here, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, who do you think of? Yeah, you think of the soldiers who fought there, but most specifically you think of Abraham Lincoln and the famous Gettysburg Address. If I mention a place in Memphis, Tennessee called Graceland, the person that might pop into your brain is... See, now you knew that one more than George Washington... Which tells me the kind of people that you are. Uh, Yeah, you think of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, who lived at Graceland. Uh, What about this one? Last chance, last chance. You should all get, this is a pretty easy one. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Yeah, the Wright brothers. Orville and Wilbur, which always makes me think of popcorn and a pig who's a friend with a spider. So I think those are two unfortunate names. But the Wright brothers, at this place were the first people to successfully create human-powered flight. Right? They essentially created the airplane in, in this location. So it's, it's very famous. And, and when we mention these, these places, we think of these people, we think of these moments, these events immediately come to our minds. Well, the same kind of thing is happening in our passage today when Luke tells us where it is that Jesus is going. There's an association that's automatically being made in the minds of Luke's listeners. Jesus' audience knows exactly what to think about when they hear the little town of Nain. You see, for a person from first century Galilee, there were two fairly significant prophets in the history of their nation. Two guys, both whose names start with the letter E, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were two men who had done amazing things for God's people. They had been involved with all sorts of different things. And on two separate occasions, they had each actually raised someone from the dead. Two young boys who were, only son, who were the only sons of their mothers. Now, sometimes we have this impression, and I just want to kind of clear up this rumor, that In the Bible, people are being raised from the dead all the time. It's like not a big deal. It happens every other day. And people kind of have this sense of like, well, how come God doesn't do that stuff anymore? Friends, let me clear this up for you. In the entire Bible, which is like a thousands and thousands and thousands of years sort of gap, right? Seven people are raised from the dead, plus Jesus. Actually, there's some debate about it. Somewhere between seven and nine people, depending on the scholars you talk to. But not very many. Not very many. And three of those instances, three of the times that someone was raised from the dead are associated with these two guys, Elijah and Elisha. And even though Elijah, when he raised this young boy from the dead, he did it up in this town called Zarephath. When Elisha, when he raised... His young boy from the dead, it happened just over the hill from this teeny tiny little town down in southwest Galilee called Nain. Friends, when people heard Nain, they thought of Elijah and Elisha and people being raised from the dead. And now Jesus, the greatest rabbi who had, in the history of Israel, who had been teaching and healing and who has just restored the centurion's servant, he's now on the move. And where is he going? People have caught wind that he is headed to Nain. And now it makes sense why Luke tells us that a large crowd went along with him. Of course they did. 
Of course they went. Jesus is headed to Nain. Jesus is headed back to the old stomping grounds of Elisha. People are going to make that 20 mile hike. They're not going to miss it. They are not going to miss what they assume, what they anticipate is probably most likely going to happen in this place. And so they make the 20 mile hike all together. This large crowd, a whole day's venture south. Read on with me in verse 12. As he, as Jesus approached the town gate, and by the way, not like a real gate, there's not a wall around this city, again, a very small town, there is no wall, there is no gate. By the town gate, what, uh, what Luke is referring to here is probably two large stones, or maybe some very small stone pillars that had been built on the road, sort of designating the city limit. So that's the town gate. As Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, The only son of his mother. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. So Jesus rolls into town, and immediately, instantly, they encounter a funeral. This is actually, uh, the scene that's being described here is a very typical, small-town, first-century Jewish funeral possession. Procession. Sorry, I have a severe cold today, and so my words are not coming out that great because my head feels like it's going to explode. So forgive me. And you have to understand this about funerals back in first century Israel. They were not planned events like they are in our world. When someone died back then in Jesus' day, you held a funeral for them immediately. Unless they died late at night, it was going to be the day of. Why? Because it's hot. It's hot in the Middle East, right? And they didn't have like refrigeration or preservatives. And so you needed to get that body in the ground as soon as possible because decay would start almost instantly. Plus, the Jewish people were very hesitant to be around death. They had some extremely strict rules and laws around, about being around dead bodies of any kind. And so the funeral would be held immediately, probably on the same day. Word would just spread around the small town that someone had passed. People would gather. The body would be placed on a stretcher-like contraption, usually made out of wood or woven branches, and they called it a beer. Not like a beer you would drink, but like a beer, like a plank that you would just like a like a that you would carry a body on. They did not put the bodies into coffins. They did not have coffins in first century Israel. And and because bodies were never buried inside city limits, that was an absolute no no. They did not want any form of death inside the city. They would take and carry the body outside the city to a designated burial spot. The whole procession procession would move together and the immediately family would walk in the front as everyone openly wailed and mourned this loss. And here's what you need to know. Here's here's the main point in all of that. This is not a tragedy that occurred weeks or even days ago. The grief, the pain, the anguish, the torment, the unbelievable sorrow this mother is feeling in this moment, it's as raw and it's as fresh as it can possibly be. We're told in this passage that this woman has already lost her husband. We do not know when that happened. But this child, this child that she has now just lost, he was her only son. 
I want you just to think about that for a moment. I want you just to think about the loss that this woman has just endured. Think about how she feels. Think about the emotion. Several years ago, I walked into a hospital waiting room to meet the parents of two young boys who, after spending the day at Disneyland with their, with their uncle, were hit in a crosswalk going back to their car when a young teenage driver blew through a stoplight. One of the boys was named Zach. At the time, he was six, and he suffered severe brain trauma, but he lived. His older brother, Kenny, age seven, was killed instantly. Friends, I can still remember the long walk down that hallway, hearing the groans coming from the waiting room from those parents, especially the mother that night. Sounds that you can't even describe Sounds that say, the pain in my soul is so deep, there is nothing in this world that can express it. Some in this room have, unfortunately, experienced that kind of pain, and so you know exactly where this woman is. One one commentator I read this week described this scene this way. He said, There is all the ageless sorrow of the world in this austere and simple statement. In this one statement, all the sorrow of the world, he was his mother's only son and she was a widow. It does not get any lower or darker or more desperate than this, friends. But now we will find out. Now Jesus shows up and he's going to show us what kingdom compassion looks like. In this, in this story, Jesus is going to reveal to us what it looks like for the compassion of God to bump up against even the most awful, horrible, fallen, broken, desperate parts of this world that we live in. Verse 13. When Jesus, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. This is one of those verses that you just kind of blow right past. You just read over and you move on to the next one. But I want us to stop and I want us to consider this statement for a moment. I want want us to consider how enormous what Luke tells us here actually is. Because it all starts here, friends. The story starts to turn here. Redemption starts here. This verse is where everything begins to turn around and kingdom compassion begins to take root. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Jesus rolls into town after a 20-mile hike with a large crowd of disciples and other followers just to run into a funeral procession. And when he does, he doesn't just observe a crowd. He doesn't just see an event. He doesn't just notice a tragedy even. This verse tells us that Jesus looks and he sees her. He sees this woman. Friends, kingdom compassion begins when we really see people. And Luke tells us what it means. Luke tells us what it means to really see someone. He says that Jesus sees her in a way that his heart goes out to her. The Greek word that describes this for us is the word for compassion that is internalized and felt deep down inside someone's gut. Jesus sees this woman 
He sees her pain. He imagines what she's feeling and going through. And he allows her situation to impact him on a deep emotional level. He enters into her story and he says to himself, I want to know what it's like to be you. He does not hold her at arm's length. He sees her. I guess the question for us today is this. Anyone in your life that God is calling you to see? Are there any people in your world that you've looked at, you've noticed them, but you haven't really taken the time to really see them in a while? Maybe they're sitting right next to you. For some in this room, we just need to see our spouse again. Maybe it's been... Maybe it's been way too long. Maybe it's been such a long time since you stopped and considered your very own husband, your very own wife's struggles or pain or difficulties or challenges. Maybe they have become so familiar to you. Maybe you've heard them talk about them so often that you can't remember the last time that you allowed their story, their perspective to seep in and impact you emotionally. Maybe... Maybe God's calling you to stop and in a fresh way, see a good friend. Or maybe a child, maybe a kid. Maybe you haven't been taking the time to listen and remember what it's like to be a teenager or a middle schooler. Maybe you've just assumed that they don't want to talk, but the truth is this, even when they don't even know it, they long for mom, they long for dad to stop and put down the phone and turn off the television and simply... See them. When I was in college, there was a guy by the name of Ken. Ken and I were both physics majors, and because we went to a fairly small school and the physics math department was also fairly small, most of my physics and math classes were with Ken. Ken was kind of a loner. He wasn't very smart. He wasn't good looking. He didn't have great personal hygiene. His social skills were honestly, for the most part, I guess I'll say lacking. And because of all these factors, Ken would often be seen sitting in the cafeteria at lunch or at dinner at a table all by himself. I remember there were a couple times when when we sat with him, my friends and I, a couple times that you know, we invited him to join us for a meal or that I paired up with him on a, on a physics lab or went down to his room to work calculus problems together. But for the most part, friends, by and large, four years, two classes a semester, I never saw Ken. I never saw him. I never thought about his story. I never took time to think, I wonder what it's like to be him. I wonder what it's like to be a college student sitting in a cafeteria full of college kids laughing and relating and talking and connecting and to just be there in the midst of all that community and to be utterly and completely alone and isolated. I never saw Ken. Four years. I was a Christian leader on that campus. My junior and senior year, I was the president of the big Christian gathering, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And yet every single day, I would sit in class with this guy, and I never even saw him. One of my deepest regrets, one of the deepest regrets I carry 
from what was otherwise a wonderful college experience. Friends, I have to ask you, I think Jesus would ask us today, got any Kens in your life right now? Got any people in your office? Or in your neighborhood? Or in the hallways at school? Who just stand there alone at their locker in between class and they're hurting and they're by themselves and all they want, all they want, deep down, if they could express it, they would just say this, I just want someone to see me. Anyone. I'll take anyone. Just someone to have the eyes of Jesus and really and truly care and engage with me emotionally. Do you know anyone like that? Do you see them? Have you stopped seeing them? Friends, who is God calling you to see in your world right now? Who does He want you to open up your heart to and engage with emotionally this week? Maybe your prayer, maybe your prayer should just be this. Maybe you don't even think of anyone and your prayer should simply be, God, open up my eyes and help me see who you want me to see. I did that this week. You know what I noticed? A woman and her daughter stranded on the side of the road with her broken down minivan. I'll just be honest. Most weeks, not preaching this sermon, I would have driven right past. Busy. Three kids. Lots to do. Big job. I don't got time to stop. Besides, what would I do? I, I mean, if do not let me work on your car. Like, <laughs> seriously, that's, that's a complete disaster. But this week I stopped, you know. And they didn't need me. And they said, no, we're fine. We've got someone coming. It's fine. I was like, whew. And I can get credit without actually having to do anything. Awesome. No. See, friends, that's who we are, though. That's how we live. We're so busy. We're so stressed. We're so self-consumed that we just don't see people. Not Jesus. Not not my Jesus. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Isn't that kind of a strange response from this guy in this moment? Isn't you think that's kind of funny, how he just sits up and begins to talk? If someone raises from the dead, now most of us haven't seen this, but if you imagine how it would go, don't you think they'd be a bit groggy? Right? Like, but no, this guy just like, it's like he was mid-conversation when he died, and he just like pops right back up, and he's just still going. You know? And you wonder why Luke includes that fact. I'll tell you why I think he does. I think Luke wants us to understand here that Jesus doesn't sort of kind of rouse him. He doesn't kind of revive him. Jesus raises him. And when Jesus raises him, he's raised. It's like, bam, when Jesus said it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and it happens quick. He just sits right up and begins to talk. And Jesus doesn't want to talk. He just gives them back to mom. (laughs) But here's what we learn about Jesus in this moment. Jesus is really focused on the mom here. He doesn't really care about the guy as much, which is kind of funny. He's the dead one. You think he'd be the one Jesus is really worried about. No, he's really worried about mom. We'll talk about that in a minute. Here's what we learn from Jesus in this moment. Here's what we learn about kingdom compassion. Kingdom compassion translates into redemptive action. Real kingdom compassion, real compassionate feelings and emotion always play out with redemptive 
action. Jesus doesn't just feel friends. He doesn't just look at this poor woman and say, oh, poor thing, and then leave and walk away and go on with his business. No, he moves, he acts, he does something. And, and what he does is actually quite shocking. He touches this, this, this stretcher that they're carrying on, this beer, and to touch that, to touch any part of that, would be like to touch a dead body. And that means that Jesus would now be considered unclean, dirty, defiled. You hear hear what Luke's telling us here? Jesus literally gets his hands dirty so that he can do everything in his power to help this woman with her situation. He's not worried about his cleanliness. He's worried about her. You see, friends, in the same way that kingdom compassion cannot stand back and hold people at arm's length emotionally, kingdom compassion also can't stand back practically either. You see, when we read this story, all we see is a woman experiencing emotional pain. That's our modern Western read of this story. But friends, that is not the only challenge she's facing. The emotional heartbreak of losing her child is a huge part of it. That's not the only part. Friends, this was a society without social security. There was no life insurance in Maine. A woman who was a widow and whose only son had died, would be well on her way to complete and utter poverty. You see, it was the men in this culture who took care of the women. If there were no men in your life, ladies, you were up a creek without a paddle. This woman would have been begging. She would have been 100% at the mercy of other people's charity, totally marginalized, probably ostracized mostly living in isolation. And so when Jesus raises this son to life again, he's not only saying, hey, I want to help you and meet your emotional needs, he's saying, I also want to meet your very practical needs as well, your social and your economic needs. See, let me tell you what I think is is often wrong with me, and maybe you'll recognize some of this in yourself too. When it comes to compassion... Like when it comes to stories of compassion or the idea of compassion, I'm all for it. I love it. I mean, I would never say it's a bad thing. I just, I'm a, I'm a compassionate person, right? When hurting people get helped, I'm pumped. When suffering gets eliminated, I am 100% in. When people reach out beyond themselves to those who are in pain, I'm so forth that I often even get emotional about it. And as we've discussed, that's a real good thing. That's an important part of the process. Jesus was the same. He weeps when Lazarus goes to the tomb. That's before he's about to raise him from the dead. So Jesus isn't anti-emotion, he's pro-emotion, but Jesus will also ask us this, will you do something beyond your emotion? A couple weeks ago, there was a sports center uh, program on this young girl named Lauren Hill. Some of you may have seen this. This girl, Lauren Hill, she's a freshman in college this year. She got a scholarship to Mount St. Joseph's College to play basketball, a little small NCAA Division III school. Her lifelong dream to play college basketball. The only problem is that that Lauren's inoperable terminal brain cancer started to advance a little faster than they thought, and it did not look like Lauren was going to be in good enough shape for the very first game 
It looked like Lauren was never going to get a chance to fulfill her dream of playing college basketball. And so what her teammates and her coach and her school and the NCAA did is they moved the first game from Mount St. Joseph, NCAA women's basketball, they moved that first game up two weeks just so Lauren could play. And it was still kind of a chance. It was still kind of, you know, like a little bit sketchy. Would she feel good enough that day to take the court or not? Turns out she did. 10,000 people gathered. I don't know if you know anything about NCAA women's basketball, but they don't normally get 10,000 fans. But they had a large crowd for this game. And when Lauren took the court and scored her first basket, the first basket of her college career, and the very first two points of the entire NCAA season, that place went off. Her teammates were running and jumping and hugging. And her parents, these people who were going like, to lose their 19-year-old daughter, they stood on the sideline in the front row and just beamed with joy and happiness. And I sat there, friends, I sat there in my living room in front of my television and watched this thing and I bawled like a baby. But you know what? That's part of the problem. That's part of the issue. You see... It's so easy for me to be self-deceived. It's one of the dangers of compassion. We can so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we are being compassionate when in all honesty, we're not. We're We're only doing half of the program. We're only reaping half of the benefit. We're only embracing and engaging half of the Jesus way of life. It is so simple to sit and watch a video or hear a sermon or read some statistics and convince myself I have the heart of God because I'm emotional, because I'm tender-hearted, because I have compassionate feelings. But Jesus says kingdom compassion goes so much farther than just feeling. Now let me pause just for a moment at this point in the message and say this. Redemptive action, acting on your compassion, putting compassion to work, it can take on a lot of forms. In this story, the form that it takes is that Jesus, from a place of compassion, he acts and he does what? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Judy. You're the only one who's listening. We'll just check. He raises the boy from the dead. That's right. I hope the other people can hear us. Yeah. Jesus acts in compassion and he raises this boy from the dead. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm just going to say this to you. You might not be able to do that. Like, it might not be in your wheelhouse. You may not have the capacity to raise someone from the dead. And just because I want to cut this off before it happens, I know someone's going to come up after church with the Bible verse that says, well, the Bible says that we can do even greater things than Jesus. And I'm going to respond to you by saying, well, then okay then. How many times have you done it? (laughs) Name one person in this room who has raised someone from the dead. I mean, in every crowd, there's like someone who did it. You know, like I was in Africa once and it happened, right? Right, so potentially, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that could happen in your life. But more than likely, you're not going to be able to pull off the whole dead raising thing. Right? And you may not have the capacity to do that. You may not have the capacity to cure someone's disease when you encounter that. You may not be able to fix their marriage. You may not be able to solve all the problems that they're having with their in-laws, especially on Thanksgiving week. Don't even go there. And here's the danger... The danger is this. 
One of the main reasons I believe we are simply so often inactive when it comes to acts of compassion is that we, we just get overwhelmed by the sheer scale of human suffering and we begin to feel paralyzed by our inability to solve and deal with the problems that we see before us. And we, we kind of have this sense, if we can't fix it, if we can't completely 100% give this situation an overhaul, well then I'm just going to wait, I'm going to step back, I'm not going to dive in because I'm not sure I have what it takes to really be of help. Friends, let me tell you this, just hear this, this might be the best thing you hear all day. Compassion is a one person at a time, one moment at a time thing. It doesn't happen through big campaigns. It's fun to do something all together and we're all going to do something to have this huge impact. You know how those big campaigns happen? One person at a time. One decision at a time. One moment at a time. You see, maybe for you, God will call you to act. You'll feel, you'll engage, you'll see someone and God will say it's time to act. And maybe the thing that God is calling you to do is just listen Maybe that'll be your big action step. How many in here are good listeners? Yeah, you don't want to... I'm not a good listener by, by nature, to be honest. That sounds kind of strange. I'm a pastor. Um, I'm a fixer. I like to fix. I like to give advice and thoughts and opinions. That's like naturally my default mode. And I remember early on when I became a pastor and I got married and they kind of happened in a real similar time frame. I was learning a lot about this. I won't say who was giving me more thought on it, but I was learning a lot about being a better listener and not always trying to fix things. And this really wise mentor friend of mine gave me this advice. She said, Dave, when you're talking to Amy, she's telling you about some of her struggles, and you're tempted to try to fix her problems. Instead of doing that, just ask her this question. What do you need from me right now, honey? What do you need from me right now? Because more often than not, when Amy vents or talks or expresses some frustration, she does not want me to give her 10 ways that she might live a more productive and happy life. She just wants me to listen. And so now I have this wonderful tool where I just say, Honey, what do you need from me right now? And she says, I just need you to listen. And I say, Awesome. I can do that. Now some of you will come to see me in the office because I use this very same trick when I talk to people um, at church. They'll tell me their problem and I'll just say, what do you need from me right now? Because I really don't know. I mean, it's a very sincere question. Do you just want me to listen? Do you want me to help? Do you want me to dive in? Do you want me to get some other people involved? Do you want me to give you 10 action steps? What do you need from me right now? It's a great thing. Maybe the big action step for you with the person that God is calling you to see is simply just to listen. Maybe it's just to pick up the phone and say, hey, call in to find out how you're doing. Maybe it's something small like offering to watch someone's children or writing a card or buying a Christmas gift for someone who wouldn't maybe have one otherwise. In fact, friends, in fact, if you haven't done that, I want to make this sermon as practical as I possibly can. And I want to challenge you, have at least one experience. Take one action, one tangible, extended act of compassion between now and and the end of the holiday season. Just Don't just feel, don't just look around at Christmas time and over Thanksgiving and feel all warm and fluffy, because we all do, right? 
just kind of the, the, the oh, I just feel, I feel like a better person because of all the Christmas lights and garland around. Don't just, don't do that. Just choose one moment, one person, one thing and say, I'm going to do something here. If you need help with that, I've got a couple options for you. Uh, last week, actually a couple weeks ago, one of our high school students came to me and said, Pastor Dave, I'm trying to, to, to rally some supplies for some needy children in Rwanda who are a part of this ministry called Play for Hope. Apparently there's some, some kids in Rwanda who just want to play soccer, but they, just don't, they, don't have, they don't have the right gear. They don't have the basic necessities to even just be kids and play soccer. And so they're looking to, to rally and get some soccer gear for some kids. Caitlin will be in the back today. She'll be at one of the tables. She'll have these flyers. All you need to do is take one, choose an item off the list, purchase it, and bring it back. Super simple. One easy act of compassion. I was at DHS this week and talking to one of the workers there, and they told us that for the hundreds and hundreds of children that work their way through the foster care system every month in our county, I'll say that again. For the hundreds and hundreds of children that work their way through the foster care system every month in our county, they do not have enough Christmas gifts for them. They're still looking for people to go out and purchase Christmas gifts so that these kids, these foster kids, who've literally been taken from their homes, removed from living with mom and dad, can just have a present over Christmas. And I said, do you have a list? And... They said, we have two, and so we got it for you. There's a list that says holiday gift ideas for foster teens. And on the back side, it says holiday gift ideas for foster children. I will let you guess which gifts cost more. Um, (laughs) Nothing fancy about this. Two-sided white piece of paper with a list printed on it in black and white. All you have to do is choose a gift, purchase it, And then don't wrap it. They don't even want you to wrap it. Deliver it to one of the local DHS locations listed on the bottom. There are two locations for you. One in Hillsboro and one in Beaverton. Real close. Just a tangible, practical, act of compassion that you can do right now. They're looking for gifts all throughout December. Our high school students are doing a -a serve-a-thon this year. And I totally got this wrong in the first service and told, like, did you guys hear this already? Did you know my mistake? I told the whole first service that the high school kids, you could hire them to do work and then you would pay them and they'd use that money to buy Christmas gifts for needy families. Apparently that's not what they're doing. They don't want to work at all. (laughs) But they are going to fast for a day, right? That's how it goes. They're going to fast for an entire day and they're looking for people from our congregation and from our community to sponsor them in their fast and they're going to take that money and they're going to buy Christmas gifts and Christmas food for needy families who could not otherwise afford it. And so if you want to do an act of compassion and get like double credit, you can show compassion by sponsoring a high school kid who's doing an act of compassion and then you get like a double whammy extra credit compassion thing and then you're good for January as well, I guess. No, that's not how it goes. But here's the point, friends. Don't just feel, act, do something. And then don't do this, don't do this. Don't just buy a gift and then check it off the list and go, there's my compassion, I'm good now. I don't have to pay attention to anyone else in my life. I don't have to look out for those Kens that God might put in my path. No, friends. You know, sometimes it's really easy to buy a gift or sponsor a kid and just check it off the list. You know what's hard? Entering into a relationship with someone who's difficult. Following the Spirit of God when He says, hey, it's time to invite that person over for dinner. 
Do it all. Don't just do part. Do whatever, actually do this, do whatever the Spirit of God is telling you to do. And now Luke will make one final point about kingdom compassion and we will be done. Verse 16. So Jesus raises this boy from the dead. He sits up and begins to talk. He gives the boy back to mom and then it says this. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, you'll notice here at the end of this story, there's kind of a dramatic shift. Up until this point, there's been a lot of focus on this this woman and her son and how she's feeling and how he's doing and Jesus' interaction with them. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Jesus raises the boy from the dead and then we do not hear anything about him or his mom again. It's like, they just like, whoop, right off the screen. Nothing. She doesn't write a thank you note to him. She doesn't invite Jesus to dinner. We don't hear about how her son grew up to become this great national leader. And, and we just don't get any kind of conclusion to their story. And it's because for Luke, their story is not the focus. For Luke, this story is actually all about Jesus. And what Luke wants us to know is this. Kingdom compassion ultimately reveals who Jesus truly is. You see, what people in the first century, what Luke's readers and Jesus' followers would have noticed up to this point, is that Jesus' story here, this miracle that he does in name, pretty much, it pretty much mirrors what Elijah did in Zarephath and what Elisha did down near Nain. All three, in all three instances, they all respond to, a, to the desperate pain of a grieving mother. In all three instances, Jesus, Elijah, Elisha, all three raise an only son from the grave. And people begin to put these clues together and they come to this conclusion. Ah, Jesus is like Elijah and Elisha. This is an extremely important, very special man of God. But if you stop there, you miss something that's pretty important. You see, in addition to how Jesus' story is similar, how it mirrors the stories of Elijah and Elisha, perhaps the most significant part is how Jesus' story differs. See, when Elijah and Elisha raise the two young boys from the dead, they each spend a considerable amount of time and energy crying out to God, praying to God. They actually both lay prostate on top of these two boys and beg God to raise them from the dead. Jesus, on the other hand, does none of this. He goes through none of these, these antics at all. What does Jesus do? He just walks up, touches the beer. That's right. That's a fun word to say. He touches the beer. And he says, what? Get up. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God to help, right? See, Jesus doesn't have to ask God for the power to raise this man from the dead because Jesus is God, the one who has the power to raise this man from the dead. And that is the point of Luke. Luke is saying, when you see compassion like this, You see God. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus in this story. And even more significantly, if you want to know how your God feels about you, read how Jesus 
feels about the woman in this story. Maybe I haven't thought about that before, but here's the truth. Here's the point. Here's what Luke would want us to just grapple with and grab a hold of and just bury down deep in our minds and hearts. Did you know that God sees you? No. I mean, I know you know, but do you know that our God sees you? He doesn't say, take a number. He doesn't say, wait your turn. He doesn't say, stand in line. He doesn't put up one of those flashy light meter things to let you on and off the freeway, so you have to wait. No, God is not too busy. He's not in a rush. He doesn't have a lot of things going. He sits, and He looks at you, and He sees you, and His heart goes out to you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggles. He sees your doubts. He sees your insecurity. He sees your sin. He sees your joy. He sees everything about you. He sees you and his heart goes out to you. What Luke wants us to know here is that we serve a God that has compassion for his people. He just loves us. He just reaches out to us. And then he just doesn't sit and say, man, I feel so good about you or sad for you. He goes to work. The Bible says that our God is always at work. He's always working for the good of those who love Him. He's always trying to work things and angle things and rearrange things that we might encounter Him and know Him and love Him more and become more the people He longs for us to be. Your God sees you. His heart goes out to you. He works on your behalf. And friends, that's what this meal reminds us of. This meal reminds us that because of the love of God, because of the compassion of God, remember how Jesus touches the stretcher, the beer, and, and, and because he touches that, he's defiled, but then the boy gets life? That's the message of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus is defiled. He's, detri- he's treated as a hardened criminal so that, what? So that we can be cleaned so that we can have life. He's defiled. We get life. That's what this this meal reminds us of. We come and we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we can have life. That he loves us and has compassion for us, not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of who he is and what he's done. And then, and then this meal, it doesn't just remind us of our forgiveness, it empowers us to go out now and live that same compassion in a world that desperately needs to encounter and meet that same Jesus. Guess where they're going to meet him? In you. When Christ's compassion lives in you, people begin to see who God really is. So this morning, we're going to close our service. The worship team's going to come up. We do this every week. Do not let it be routine. Take a minute. Consider how much your God loves you. Consider the compassion He has for you. Ask Him to show you in deeper and deeper ways that compassion. And then when you're ready, come forward. Take the bread, take the cup, bring it back to your seat. We're going to receive it together in just a minute. Remember that we serve a God of compassion. And that we're called to be compassionate people because his compassion was given to us first. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this this teeny little podunk town where your son went and met this woman. Had so much compassion for her that we get a chance to just get a glimpse of your heart. 
I pray that if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that has any doubt about how you feel about them, that your Holy Spirit would just break down those walls, break down those barriers, and help them to know and see and experience the tremendous compassion and love that you have for them. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray it in Christ's name.